Hello and welcome to Become an Educator, the podcast that aims to explore the secrets to great teaching in our classrooms. I'm Darren Leslie, and each week I discuss things that will hopefully make an impact in your school, with guests from classroom teachers to head teachers and everyone in between and beyond in the education sector. This week I am joined by Sam Hall. Sam trains as a geography teacher in the northeast of England and now works at the online education company Uplearn, where he spends each day writing scripts for instructional videos. Sam writes and talks regularly about Siegfried Engelman's model of direct instruction on his blog, which is shallteach.wordpress.com, and on talks. And this is where I found Sam, because he gave a wonderful talk. For the, for the wonderful team at Brew Ed Cleethorpes, which you can find on their YouTube channel. And in today's, in today's discussion, we dive deep into direct instruction, how Sam found it, and exactly what it is, and how it informs Sam's philosophy of education. We then talk through project follow-through, something that until recently I had never heard of, and which we discuss a lot of the listeners might not have heard of, and it was fascinating to unpick what that was and what the results were. Sam then goes on to explain the differences between Rosenshine's principles of instruction, which I certainly have heard of, and Engelman's direct instruction, and how Engelman's direct instruction is different. And that takes us on to diving deep into direct instruction, specifically the theory of instruction, the epic tome that is Engelman's theory of direct instruction, which is a very hefty read, I can assure you. We then go on to discuss how direct instruction can actually work in our classrooms, and Sam gives us great detail on how he applied it to his geography classroom. It was wonderful to chat with Sam and learn so much about Engelman's direct instruction. I really hope that you get a lot out of this, so let's dive right in. Sam Hall, thanks so much for joining me on the Becoming Educated podcast. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. No, it certainly was. As I said in my introduction, I listened to your talk for Brewhead Cleethorpes and I was just blown away with, with the information that you shared. So I'm excited to unpick that today on the podcast. Um, just to ease us in gently, um, can you share a little bit about, about you and your career in education to date? Yeah, of course. Um, so loosely, uh, it began pretty much right after I left school. Um, I took a year out uh, before university and spent some time working in a load of different jobs, all with kids. And um, so initially that was as a rugby coach at a school and then working as uh, a teacher of foreign language in Nepal. And then finally uh, in a summer camp in the United States. I think that really ignited a passion for working with kids. Uh, and then I went off to university and obviously, you know, immersed myself in everything that university student immerses themselves in for two years. Uh, and I was signed up for a, a placement or a sandwich year at uni. And um, I remember looking through the jobs and it was like, you know, a junior intern at computer company, insurance underwriter, tax advisor. And I was like, none of this floats my boat. And so I 
just cancelled the sandwich year and applied for Teach First instead, uh, which I got a place for, which was which was really exciting. Um, and I had this like fantastic year and a bit in my final year of university where I could just throw myself into like all this educational theory uh, that was being recommended to me. So I had a great year of that before I even stepped into the classroom. Uh, and so I flew into my first year of teaching uh, at a school, school in South Shields. And then I kind of, you know, discovered that what I was reading in books is a little bit different to what actually goes on in the classroom and had to you know deal with that uh, but it was in that time in my first two years that I started to kind of get to grips and learn about Zig Engelman and direct instruction and applying some of those ideas in my classroom and that was formative and really interesting I loved it uh, and then after those two years I moved to London uh, mainly for family reasons and took a job in uh, at school in London uh, I taught there for a bit and then uh, November 2019, uh, I joined the online learning company Uplearn, uh, where I am today as a learning executive. Sounds exciting! Such a such a varied varied path. I love all the the rugby coaching and, and teaching in Nepal and so on. Such a fascinating fascinating journey. Um, before we get into deep into the theory of instruction from from Zagel Engelman, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Uplearn and, and what they do? Yeah, of course. Um, Uplearn is an online learning platform. And at the moment, we offer A-level courses. So that's economics, psychology, maths, and the sciences. Uh, and what we do is we take the specification and we break it down into a series of sections. Uh, so you might get a section in the economics course on the price elasticity of demand, uh, or in maths on like index form, or in physics on electromagnetic, uh, on electromagnetic waves. Uh, and in each of these sections, it's a bit like Duolingo, you go through the section and there's a mixture of video instruction and embedded quizzing. And the aim is that students will master each section of the course as they move through. Um, and my role is, is as a learning executive, uh, so it's quite a fancy title, uh, but essentially, uh, my role is to be responsible for the instructional scripts that, that go on site uh, and then we work with animators and quiz writers to make sure that the the learner's journey through the through the subsection or the section will lead to success uh, and as we move around from subsection section in the course i work on different things which is great so just worked on the photoelectric effect in physics and then i'm working on optical isomerism in chemistry so it's quite a varied you know <laughs> set of things to do um and yeah you know Uplearn is comprehensive, covering the whole spec. So the aim is, regardless of their background knowledge, and the student could do the whole Uplearn course, and then they, you know, hopefully would get an A or A star in their exams uh, in normal times if exams were to be going ahead. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's what Uplearn does. Certainly, it sounds sounds very very exciting, and I'll certainly go and check that out. So now the the reason I asked you on Sam was to to dive into to direct instruction, but before we do that. Um, you kind of alluded to it in the introduction. How did you come to direct instruction and theory of instruction? Uh, and then why did you find your ITT year very frustrating? Yeah, great question. Um, so the, the, the first part of this is finding my ITT year frustrating, um, which wasn't for any other reason than the kind of standard reasons of um, it was really hard, um, you know, I wanted my students to learn everything uh, that I wanted them to know in the classroom. And I had this like, you know, I have this knowledge in my head about the rainforest and the aim is my students to learn this knowledge, but the process was impossible. I never, never worked. And, you know, 
I would have meetings with tutors and university people and you know, whoever was observing my lessons. And out of that came a number of different approaches. And I tried a series of you know, discovery learning, standing from the front of the class and teaching, um, you know, every, every method on the sun, but it wasn't really working for me. And so, um, you know, I was lucky, you know, we all lucky to have long summer holidays. And uh, in that time, I really kind of was like, right, I'm going to find an answer. Like, how, how can I actually teach that's effective? And, you know, what is there in the research literature? And that kind of coincided with um, some time where I was listening to some podcasts and going to some research ads. And I heard Chris Bolton talk about direct instruction. Uh, and he made a very compelling case um, for why we should be interested in direct instruction. So I started researching it, uh, found out there's very little about it, really. And that kind of cascaded uh, into a, a slight obsession over a summer and then scripting some lessons and, and then actually going into my classroom and using those lessons. Um, so yeah, that's how I, that's how I got, in, got started at least. Okay, so I, I'm really interested then, Sam, could you, could you share with us then what is, what is your philosophy of education? And then can you follow that with why long-term memory is so important? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, when, I, when I talk about direct instruction, I like to start by talking about a philosophy of education. Because, you know, generally, I think we can agree uh, on on a philosophy of education that everyone is happy with. And for me, you know, the students leaving my classroom or, or leaving school, I want them to um, have a good range of knowledge, a good knowledge in a range of subjects, uh, to be able to think creatively, to problem solve, to think critically, um, and to be, you know, happy, well-rounded students. The question really is, you know, how do we get there? Um, and you know, from an from a from an academic's perspective, I think when I was, you know, doing, doing research, one of the things that really stood out to me was um, Kirshner, Sweller and Clark's paper, where they pointed out that long-term memory is the central dominant structure of human cognitive architecture. Or if we want students to know lots about a subject, to be able to think critically, uh, to, to be able to think creatively, then they need to have lots and lots of knowledge in their long-term memory. Mm -hmm. And that that is is more of the uh, controversial point that people might start to disagree with but that is the kind of the, the central part of, of how I see academic learning in the classroom it's all about enacting change in long-term memory so again the question becomes how do we teach for long-term memory in the classroom and then there's two parts of that of what I would call that learning equation there is the uh, part where students come into your classroom knowing nothing and you teach a lesson, say, or on optical isomerism, and they leave the classroom knowing uh, that a liana grows upwards uh, or something about optical isomerism. Okay? There's that short term part of the learning equation, what I'd call the getting it in the moment. And then there's this other part of the learning equation, which is that students in a week's time, a month's time, six months' time can come back to your classroom or an example and they can recall what they've been taught okay, or the, the keeping it part of the knowledge equation. So my uh, suggestion is that the keeping it is, is pretty well understood, at least, you know, in the Twitter sphere of cognitive science lovers. Um, 
and that it you know comes down to things like Ebbinghaus's forgetting curve, the testing effect, um, using low stakes quizzes. You know, if we have taught students something, we just test them on it at regular intervals using low stakes testing, and they should retain that knowledge. You know, the theory of disuse and things like that. But that that has never really been something that's troubled me. I think that's well established, and people agree with it. It's the getting it part of the learning equation that I've always struggled with. I think I've kind of alluded to that already. And remember, I've I've sat in, I've as a as an ITT sitting in a Daisy Christodouli lecture, and her telling me all about this great stuff about about keeping knowledge. And I, I remember walking up to her and being like, "But how how do I how do I do the teaching part?" And that is less well defined, uh, or at least it appeared less well understood to me. And so that that is really kind of the the thrust of the question that I was following. How do I act and teach in the classroom that my students will get that knowledge? Um, and so that's what led me to direct instruction, um, because you know there there has been some really interesting research uh, into various different teaching methods from which direct instruction came out as an interesting uh, case study. Certainly, it certainly does. And it's, it's such a fascinating way to, to think about it. We know so much about the keeping it part, but the getting it part and, and that, that instruction and it's such great questions to ask. And that brings us on to uh, project follow through. So could you share with us, Sam, what, what is project follow through? How did it come about? And, and of course, what was the outcome? Yeah, absolutely. Um, project follow through, in short, was the most extensive and most expensive educational research project of all time. And most teachers have never heard of it, or at least I'd never heard of it. And when people talk about it, people always say people have never heard of it. So I'm going to keep going with that. And people have never heard of it. Um, why? Wh what was it? Well, it ran from 1967 to 1977 in the US. Um, and it was an extension of a poverty program uh, being run by the US government. And essentially, uh, Project Follow Through asked one simple question. Uh, what is the most effective way to teach for students in the classroom? Now, you might say, well, you know, how can we even begin judging that question? Um, and the way they did it is they spent billion uh, i think a billion dollars i need to check, check those figures but you know a significant amount of money over 10 years and uh all across the country they recruited schools uh, to be studied and what they did is they recruited something called sponsors uh, and the sponsor could be any group of people that were supportive of a certain teaching methodology so whether that be discovery learning uh, experiential learning direct instruction uh, critical thinking approaches to education, they were recruited as sponsors. And a sponsor would go into, uh, would get responsibility for a school, all the training of the teachers, all the instruction, all the testing, everything, they'd run the schools and they'd get a chance to do it for 10 years. And after 10 years, they judged uh, which schools have been successful and which approaches have been successful and which approaches haven't. And they, and they judge that success in different areas because it's hard, you know, it's hard to define like, what is a successful education? Is it just getting, um, getting good grades? Is it being able to think critically? Is it having happy, well-rounded kids? 
And to solve that problem, the designers of Project Follow Through, they took all three into account. So they had uh, their tests on students' basic academic skills, so their ability to do basic maths and English. Uh, they did tests on students' problem solving and creative thinking. Uh, and then they finally did tests on measures of self-esteem and self-confidence. Um, so this extensive study across the whole of the US in, in various different communities was looking and judging a whole host of different uh, educational methodologies and judging it against a series of criteria. Now, the hope was that the results would come out and it would show that teaching approaches focused on basic skills would be best for the basic skills approaches. Uh, critical thinking approaches and problem solving approaches would be great for teaching critical thinking and problem solving and uh, teaching approaches that focus on uh, self-esteem and self-confidence would be great for self-esteem and self-confidence. But when they analyzed the results, what they found was uh, that there was one method of teaching that was top in all areas. It was the best for teaching students basic skills. It was the best for teaching students uh, how to think critically and creatively and to problem solve. And it was the best for uh, how students judged themselves in terms of their self-confidence. And that was direct instruction, um, which was super exciting to me uh, because I'd never heard of project follow through and I'd never heard of direct instruction. And suddenly I was staring at what looked like a really interesting and different and exciting teaching methodology. Um, now, often the first question people have is what is direct instruction? And you know, the direct instruction that was studied in Project Follow Through has a very specific meaning. Uh, it was a, a program of study uh, run and designed by someone called Siegfried Engelman, uh, or Zig Engelman, as he's often called. And the teaching methodology itself is, is very different to conventional teaching methods. Um, it involves, if you were to sit in a direct instruction classroom, what you'd see and the big headline is scripted instruction and call response, which straight away, when I started reading about project follow through and still today grabs me and makes me excited because it is unconventional. And just look at the results of project follow through and research it if you'd like. And it's exciting to see an unconventional method that I have never been taught about in my ITT year uh, be so successful, supposedly. So that that is, you know, a short way of understanding Engelman's direct instruction. The other key thing to point out is that it's not the same as Rosenshine's direct instruction. Lots of people will have heard of Rosenshine's principles of instruction, uh, you know, to break material down into it, its small parts, to recap learning, uh, to ask lots of questions, to scaffold tasks. You know, what we might understand, those of us that enjoy cognitive science, as good teaching, but that is not the same as Engelman's direct instruction. And that can be sort of confusing because they're both called direct instruction, which, it, you know, the marketing departments of both of these uh, teaching methodologies really need uh, questioning. So to, to differentiate between the two, uh, what I'll try and do today and what I try and do generally is to say that the direct instruction, the successful method of teaching studied in project follow through is Engelman's DI, capitalized D, capitalized I. And Rosenshine's model that he describes in the principles of instruction is explicit instruction or explicit teaching.
So, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead, carry on. So when, when, when we talk about direct instruction or Engelman's direct instruction, we're talking about something that's actually quite different to Rosenstein's explicit instruction. You know, the core response and scripted instruction aspect really sets it apart. And there's also a whole uh, huge area of thinking uh, separate from the principles of instruction that, uh, it, that led to what Engelman suggests we do in our classrooms. So would you say that then that the scripted instruction and the choral response, these two main components of direct instruction, are they what sets apart Engelman's direct instruction to Rosenstein's principles instruction? Because as you know, we're very well versed now in education in terms of Rosenstein's principles, but as you've already alluded to, even, even despite the, the huge success of direct instruction, not a lot of people have heard of it or project follow through. Yeah. I think the, the su I don't want to say superficial, but the surface level differences you'd notice is that scripted instruction and call response. Because Engelman has a very kind of narrow definition of what he considers direct instruction, uh, Engelman's or DI. Um, <clears throat> and you know, the, 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 the best way to understand Engelman's direct instruction is that it's got, kind of got two components. You, know, you can think of a hierarchical diagram at the top with two branches coming out. You've got uh, programs of DI, and then you've got the theory behind DI. Now, the programs are the things that were studied in uh, Project Follow Through, and they're still studied today. You know, they cover basic writing, basic maths, basic spelling, you know, a, lot, a lot of basic academic principles. And it's in those programs that you'll see Engelman has scripted um, all of the programs. You know, they're, they're really amazing pieces of educational work. They're comprehensive. They cover absolutely every single detail a student would need to know to master writing. Straight from learning the letters to, you know, the end of primary school writing persuasive essays and everything in between. Now, for various reasons, uh, reasons that we, we, it can be unpicked in the theory of instruction, Engelman specifies that these programs need to be scripted. Um, the quality of instruction is the single most important determinant of a student's success in the classroom, is Engelman's theory. And that's encapsulated in, in a famous and divisive punchy quote, which is that if the student hasn't learned, the teacher hasn't taught. Everything about a student's success in the classroom, according to Engelman, is dependent on the quality of instruction. And therefore, we need to do everything we can in the classroom to ensure that the quality of instruction is as high as it possibly can be. And, you know, we've all been in the classroom, or at least I, my experience in the classroom with non-scripted instruction is floundering over my words, getting distracted by, you know, certain things, having my flow interrupted, losing my place in my mind. And so the script is a guide for teachers that Engelman suggests you have to follow kind of to the T uh, to enable that quality instruction. And, you know, that, that hopefully encapsulates the difference between that and Rosenstein's, you know, principles of instruction. You know, Rosenstein's are principles that you can apply, general ideas. Um, Engelman's scripted instructional and core response is based on a very specific idea that the quality of instruction is the, is the most important factor. So the second uh, branch of our hierarchical diagram is the theory of instruction. 
and it, you know it's in the theory of instruction that Engelman condenses down all the lessons that he learned over 50 years of, of teaching these very successful programs and you know it is a very challenging read it's convoluted it's full of uh, language from the 1960s, very behaviorist, you know, extrapolation, stipulation, juxtaposition, uh, ironic for someone who, you know, focuses on the quality of instruction above anything else, that the book is so friggin' hard to read. But you know, some people, I, I'm not saying that I'm saying it's this, but some people in, in introductions to the theory of instruction say that Eng Engelman's work in the theory of instruction being ignored is like people ignoring Darwin's origin of species. You know, it, it is a is a lauded book amongst some. And the, the reason for that is that, you know, it is a comprehensive theory of education. It starts at the very fundamental basics, which is how do students learn? What is the learning mechanism? which I'm not going to go into now because I'm still trying to get my, my, my own thoughts around it. But he starts with how students learn. Uh, in fact, I'll go into a little bit. You know, the, the easiest way to understand it is that, uh, and you know, he's a behaviorist you know, with Pavlov's dog ringing a bell and the dog salivating. Um, you know, the, the way of looking at, the, the way that Engelman describes it is that uh, students are uh, the independent variable and your instruction is the dependent variable. Hope I've got that the right way around. So uh, students, if you give them the right instruction, will learn. If you give them the wrong instruction, they won't. And they're not gonna, they, you know, we just assume that it is the instruction that's the thing that has to change. And so the quality of the instruction will indicate, we know that the instruction will be quality, will be good, it'll be in good instruction because the students will have learned something. So. He places all the emphasis on the instruction. And then he talks about how to design the instruction. So the starting point of how to design the instruction is to work out what kind of knowledge we're teaching. And so he has this whole section talking about all the different types of knowledge uh, in the world. And he, he, he creates a system for breaking down all of human knowledge into three main sections and then kind of a few subsections. So he argues that there are it's a type of knowledge called basic forms, a type of knowledge called joining forms and a type of knowledge called complex forms. And based on the kind of knowledge that you're teaching, it will change in the classroom. So if I was teaching uh, a complex form of knowledge, such as how to solve a simultaneous equation, I teach that in a different way to how I teach uh, what he calls a fact system, such as understanding uh, the, the plants and the animals of the rainforest. Those, those different types of knowledge require different instructional approaches. And so once he's covered how students learn and when he's covered the types of knowledge, he then goes on to kind of a comprehensive study of the instructional approaches to put in place. And again, you know, this is a, a thousand pages, so I'm not going to do as much justice rambling on here, but you know, he, he will suggest things like uh, example sequences and visuospatial diagrams and, and various other approaches that I don't have time to go into. But this is where, this is where the theory of instruction becomes an exceptionally impressive and convincing piece of work. You know, Engelman was writing the theory of instruction in his programs in the, in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. Um, and you know, cognitive science as we know it today uh, wasn't as, as well established. You know, 
there, there wasn't a thriving Twitter community talking about cognitive load theory. But in the theory of instruction, in this comprehensive theory, are all the principles that we understand to be good teaching combined. So there's no reference to Sweller, but there's constant reference to what we understand to be cognitive load theory. There's no, there's no reference to dual coding, but there are visual spatial diagrams. There's no reference to Ebbinghaus, but there's talk about, um, you know, essentially retrieval and bringing ideas back. So they've got all of these ideas that we talk about today as good teaching that he already knew in the 60s that he is embedding and understanding and talking about. And then there's also the other stuff, the other things that he was doing on top of what we already understand to be good teaching. And that is that is what is in the theory of instruction that I think is particularly uh, exciting, are those ideas that Engelman understood to be good teaching, like example sequences, like continuous conversion, that we, we by which I mean probably me, because you know I, I can't speak for everyone else, but that I'd never heard of before in, uh, in other places. And so that's why the theory of instruction is so exciting. And that's actually why it's so convincing. You know, not only do you have the quality of evidence from project follow through and a series of other uh, studies, but you have uh, the theory that's, that clearly lines up with what we understand to be good teaching today. So that's why the theory of instruction uh, is particularly exciting, if not really hard to read. <laughs> Certainly, thank you. And, and... I love your summary Summary there. You really went into to great detail on that theory of instruction and, and the programmes. And it's it's amazing for, for us to recognise that what Engelman was doing in, in the 60s and 70s and how you reference what, what, is, what is in vogue, dare I say, now in terms of the people we're talking about and how he was already, although not referencing them, applying that to his theory of instruction. So I'd like to then move on, Sam, to, to ask you about how you would then use Engelman's theory of instruction in the classroom. I'm really interested. I'm a, a teaching in secondary school and, and I'm sure primary school listeners would be the same. How do you apply that theory of instruction to a classroom lesson? Yeah. it's it, They're all great questions, Darren. This is a particularly good question because I think this is what really hit home when I was initially researching direct instruction back a few years ago um, and one of the challenges is you know I've talked I've talked excitedly about how great direct instruction is but one of the challenges is that it all exists behind a paywall essentially you know, these programs uh, that Engelman has uh, they are direct instruction right he designed them based on his principles they are direct instruction and if you want to teach with Engelman's direct instruction you need to go out and buy the programs and implement them in your school but it also means that you, I, like I, as a teacher sitting at home uh, on my laptop, I couldn't just like look at look at a lesson or watch a video of a lesson or you know pick up a program on the cheap because they're they're expensive, they're they're comprehensive, and so it's really hard to get a, a clear idea of how to implement direct instruction in your classroom. But uh, for those of you who are interested in sleuthing around a bit, on the National Institute for Direct Instruction's website, uh, known as Nifty, uh, you will find a series of exam example lessons uh, to wade through. And you know, when I when I was thinking about direct instruction, how to apply it in my classroom, that was the source of knowledge I kind of went to. And you know, in terms of how you apply DI in your classroom, the the, the main 
thing to start with is what kind of knowledge are, we, are you teaching? And again, I think this is one of the problems, not the problems, one of the challenges with, uh, with social media and teaching, or at least it was a couple of years ago when I was really getting into this, is that a lot of the examples of how to teach things in the classroom come from a narrow set of sources. Often it's maths teachers, I find. You know, Mr. Barton's maths podcast is amazing and it's in-depth discussion of instruction, but, you know, it's maths. And the type of knowledge they teach in maths are what Engelman would call problem-solving routines, solving simultaneous equations, learning about index forms, looking at histograms. And that actually isn't reflective of the knowledge that I was teaching in my classroom. You know, I, was, I was teaching what Engelman would call fact systems. I was teaching a bunch of knowledge about stuff. Um, and again, loads and loads of knowledge about how to keep, keep it, you know, loads of talk about Ebbinghaus's forgetting curve, but you know, beyond like maybe booklets and standing up at the front of a classroom, like what what was what what constitutes good teaching and, and how would Engelman teach that? So if I'm applying DI in my classroom, the first question I'll ask is what kind of knowledge am I teaching? If I'm teaching grid reference, solving grid references, yeah, that's a cognitive routine. I can go to to the mathsy side of things and look at what Engelman suggests for that, or you know, a lot of the great suggestions on, on social media for how to teach. Um, cognitive routines. But if I'm teaching a bunch of facts, you know, what is the most effective method? And you know, we talked about booklets and talked about standing in the front of the classroom, but this is where kind of Engelman really caught me because he's got a series of lessons uh, and it's really simple. It's really, really simple. It is give students the knowledge and test them on it, all right? And the way he does that is through scripted instruction and call response. He gives tiny little uh, packets of knowledge and then he tests them on students repeatedly with scripted instruction and call response. And so uh, that was my way in, was to design uh, a script for my subject specifically. So uh, if you are in a subject that teaches lots of facts, uh, maybe biology, lots of the humanities, geography in particular, for, for my experience, then scripted instruction and call response uh, can be a useful uh, approach. Now, if you're teaching cognitive routines or other types of knowledge that you can find out more about if you read the theory of instruction, then you can use a script. It just, the approach differs somewhat. You won't be doing as much call response, but the script will still kind of, would still be a useful resource to kind of call upon when you're teaching. So could you then tell us about how you would then structure a lesson? So for, for example, if you've got, you've got this script and you want the call response, how would, how would the lesson look? How would, it, how would you conduct it over a, a 50 minute period, for example? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing to say is, this is my interpretation of Engelman's DI in my classroom in South Shields, right? It's not, this, don't, don't go around being like, oh, there's an uh, Engelman's DI going on there. It's an interpretation of it, but you know, we're loving interpretation of it nonetheless. So this is how it go in my classroom. Uh, students will come in uh, and you know, stand behind the desks, yada, yada, yada. Um, and when they're settled and they're ready, you know, they're, their equipment's on their desks and I'm ready to sit them down, uh, I've already on, on my board got a quiz uh, that they're going to do in the back of their books. It's a routine. It happens every single lesson. They know what they're doing. And so first thing, you know, sit down, crack on with the quiz in the back of your books. As they're doing that, register, walk around the classroom, you know, check on students, you know, 
give out pens or detentions or what, all that kind of stuff. When they, they'll have you know a couple of minutes to do that, say three minutes, you know, really low stakes in the back of their books, they'll mark their mark their quizzes on the PowerPoint. I'll just change and put the answers up, uh, and that will be you know the first section done. Right? They've done a starter, they've done a bit of retrieval practice, they're settled, they know what's going on, they've got their pens and everything out. Great. Then usually, and I didn't talk about this at Beredkley, but this is often what I'll do is I'll have a think pair share on the board, uh, which will cover the topic of, um, of the lesson. So I keep going back to flora and fauna as my example, but that's mainly because I know we're going to talk about that in detail. Uh, so I might just throw up some pictures of the rainforest, right? And just say, you know, 30 seconds, turn to the person next to you. You know, what can you tell about adaptations in the rainforest of this? Go, you know, and they'll, they'll chat away. Now, we can talk about that more. I like that task uh, because I think it just gives a chance for students to let their energy out a little bit, to talk, not to just be like under my thumb the whole time. Um, and there's also, I, I, I don't know the literature as well in this area, but I think there's a gen, like a generative effect um, here. You know, we're, we're priming the students for learning new knowledge and they're thinking about it a little bit. So that, you know, they'll, they'll have a little chat at that point and then I'll take some ideas from the class really I'm not particularly interested in what they have to say that sounds really rude it's like you know I, I would be shocked you know if I'm teaching a lesson in flora and fauna and I turned around and one of the kids was like oh yes sir as you can see that's a liana that's a climbing plant that's growing up into the sky you know in order to gain uh, more light to photosynthesize you know if they said that I'd be like well you know here's the floor you go and teach the lesson my friend but they're not going to you know they're largely not going to say that and you know I'm not trying to diminish their intelligence, but you know, I, I, I would be really shocked if, if they, if all, and in fact, one student could say that, I'd say, great, you know, go read a book. The 31 other students in the classroom need to know this, so I'm going to crack on with my lesson. Um, so that, yeah, it's, it's just about getting them thinking. And um, I can't remember what I was going to say at this point. Uh, I'll move on to the, oh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Um, you know, I'm saying scripted instruction and call response, but it not, you know, at this point in the lesson, we've done those scripted instruction and call response. You know, they're not, not every uh, interaction with the children is scripted. You know, we're having very normal, happy, you know, making cracking jokes, you know, talking. They're, they're doing whatever they, like, it's a normal lesson at this point. Now at this point, what, once they've done the talk, the think pair share, we're going we're gonna to move into scripted instruction. Uh, and I'm going to just introduce this like I would any other activity in the classroom. I just stand at the front, like students all looking at me, you know, if you want them slanting, you can have them slanting. And I'll just straight out address the elephant in the room. You know, if this is the first lesson I'm doing scripting instruction, I say, look, guys, team, we're going to try something different in this, in this lesson. Right? Give, give me 100% of attention and 100% of your effort. And I promise you, you will learn something in this lesson. And that, that's it. And I'll say, you know, we're going to do something. And afterwards, we're going to have a quiz, right? If you get nine out of 10 in the quiz, you will get a merit or a gold star or whatever. And at that point, whew, they are excited. And, you know, it, it, is, it, is it weird for the children in, in your classroom when that happens? Um, I had the luxury of being an ITT and an, an NQT when I was trying this. Uh, every single lesson was something new and so it's like oh mr hall is trying something new again like well, you know what a surprise that this so you know children are adaptable that you know they, they they might be excited to try something new 
So I've in, so we're introducing the fact I'm doing scripted instruction and call response with these kids, uh, with my students. I told them, you know, what they'll get if they if they give me focus, they'll be able to learn and they'll get a merit. And then I'll just set out some ground rules of how I expect the, the scripted instruction and call response to go. Uh, we'll fly through that, and then uh, after after that kind of section, which I know you want to, we'll get into in more detail. Then they'll do uh, some kind of extended writing at the end of the lesson. So it's uh, review at the start of the lesson, then we'll do some scripted instruction, then they'll do some uh, longer writing, uh, and then at the end, they've got some time, we'll do some other review stuff. So that's kind of the broad structure of the lesson. So if, I, if I'm a teacher and I'm going to teach next week, yeah. um, how, would, how would that actually look? What would I need to prepare to prepare my script and prepare for for my for my quizzes and my, and my tests of learning and, and their application. What would I, what would I need to think about, and what would I need to then consider for for application for this direct instruction approach in the classroom? Yeah. So I'm I'm going to stick with my example of flora and fauna in the rainforest. Right. It's a fact system. Okay. I'm going to use scripted instruction and call response. The first thing I want to do is define exactly what it is that I need students to learn by the end of the lesson. And I, th I think this is one of the challenges I had in my first couple of years of teaching as well, is like on the lesson, like on the, my uh, guide for the unit, it'd be like lesson five, teach the flora and fauna in the rainforest. Like, well, what does that mean? Like what specifically do you want students to know? And so when faced with that challenge, I would just write, you know, e I'd either write a model answer to a question I want them to, to, to answer, like explain the flora and fauna, the adaptations of the flora and fauna in the rainforest, I'd write a couple of paragraphs and then just pick out 10 key pieces of knowledge that I want them to learn. And I say 10 because that is, I think a lot, it's actually, if you write a list of 10 facts, right, 10 pieces of knowledge, you'll find that's quite a lot of knowledge for students to learn in the classroom. And my aim is that every single student in that class will learn those, those pieces of knowledge. And so if I'm going to teach with scripted instruction and call response, I find that's enough that the scripted part of the lesson goes on for a decent amount of time that it doesn't become overwhelming to students. So I'll make a list of this 10 pieces of knowledge, right? This is my goal, is to get 90% of students to have 90% or greater understanding of that knowledge. That sounds really arbitrary, but that was the, the barrier that Engelman used uh, for his programs. So. I'm not going to go into that further because it'll take me on a tangent. So 90% of the knowledge, right? These 10 facts. And then I'm going to build my script. And this will be a, a day, a week, a month, a year before I teach the lesson. Right? A lot of advanced planning. It takes time, maybe an hour to write the script. All I'll do is present that knowledge in its very simple form, the simplest possible form. So if I'm, you know, I can't really show you a script, but I can read from a script or read from an example of a script. So I'll give you an example. Right. This is me introducing two or three facts to my students at the start of a lesson. Okay, I would I would present the knowledge in the simplest form like this. I'd say to my students, today we're going to be learning about plants in the rainforest. We call plants flora. We call animals fauna. You can remember this because flora sounds like flower and fauna sounds like fawn, which is a baby deer. Okay, simple as you like. All right, no messing around. Flora are plants, fauna are animals. So present each piece of knowledge in its simplest form. And what I wanna do is test students on that knowledge as soon as possible. So as soon as I read that part of the script out, 
I'll turn to my turn to my class and say, okay, guys, what are flora? Point at the students. They should chant plants. What are fauna? They should chant animals. What are plants? They should chant flora. And what are animals? Fauna. All right. So I've introduced like two facts, and immediately call a response from the students. Why only you know a couple of questions? You know, we have a limited capacity in our working memory. Don't want to overload it. Just give them a couple of couple of pieces of knowledge and get them chanting it back at you. And I'm going to do, you know, when, when I have students chanting this knowledge, which sounds grad grinding and terrifying, uh, I'm going to do something what Engelman calls repeat until firm, which is I want to know that the whole class knows that flora are plants and that animals are fauna or fauna, fauna animals. And the way I can detect that is the volume of the chanting is the I don't want to say the passion in the student's eyes, but you know, you can tell when a student's engaged, right? I want to see little Johnny at the back who's never engaged. I want to see him shouting it out, right? And if Johnny's doing it, then everyone knows it. Um, and I want to keep repeating that until firm, until like, okay, they all know that flora animals and fauna, uh, flora, flower, flora plants and fauna animals. I'm getting so excited, I'm forgetting what's going on. So once I've done that, I'm going to go back to my script and I'm going to present the next set of knowledge uh, as clearly as possible. And again, I'm gonna go back to a script and it will be as simple as saying, uh, once they've done their testing sequence, one example of a plant in the rainforest is a liana. Lianas are climbing plants. Lianas wrap around trees to grow upwards. Right? Three facts, bam, 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 right? Simple as you like. And then testing them on it again. You know? um, so just, Again, throwing questions at them. What is this plant called? What type of plant is a liana? What do lianas wrap around? You know, using an image on the board, testing students again, repeating those questions until they all know absolutely categorically that the plant they see on the board is a liana, that they're climbing plants and they wrap around trees to grow upwards. And once I've repeated that knowledge until firm, I'm gonna go back and take the, the, the knowledge I previously taught them about flora and fauna. And I'm going to continue that sequence throughout the script, giving them knowledge, testing them on knowledge, bringing back old knowledge, testing them on it again. And the reason that I, I think this is so powerful and important is because every time I'm doing this, I'm trying to change the context of their learning. So if you think back to the start of the lesson, they had that generative activity, right? They, I prime them with that think pair share. Then I just told them the knowledge. Right. told them knowledge, then they chanted it again and again and again. Then I presented them some new knowledge, a little bit of time to forget for that, for that knowledge to leave their working memory, and then bring it back again. Right. Changing that context, creating a gap between when they last use the knowledge and when they use the knowledge again. Now, there's, there's, there's much more detail in, in this, this script construction. I think it's best if you're interested to take a look at uh, my blog and then there's probably more detail where I can actually present you an, a script and we can talk through it in more detail it's going to be harder on a podcast but the, 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 the fundamental idea is change the context as much as possible test students a lot and get them to chant knowledge all the, as much as possible you know there's a point in the lesson what Engelman calls a hot period where students are answering a question once every four seconds so really, really chanting lots of knowledge and the lesson becomes more a test than it becomes instruction. And that is 
that's hard cognitive work for students to be expected to retrieve knowledge from their long-term memories again and again and again and again. Um, you know, there's a, a point in Engelman's theory of instruction where I think he talks about students needing to um, use knowledge or see knowledge a thousand times before it's embedded in their long-term memory. Wow. I might have, I might have over-egged that. I'm pretty sure it's, it's you know, a thousand. It might have been a hundred. Who knows? Order of magnitudes. <laughs> it's a lot anyway. It's, it's, it's more than just saying in a, in, a, in a teaching from the front or in a booklet that a, pl a flora is flower and then leaving it at that and then hoping at the end of the lesson that they remember it. It's constantly being on students' case, you know, testing them, testing them, testing them. And then once we've got through the scripted instruction part of the lesson, where we well, designed it in such a way that I am 100% sure that students know every one of those 10 facts that I started with. Then we're going to move into uh, a quiz in the back of their books, low stakes assessment, where they're going to, it's the same routine as the start of the lesson. They're just going to have 10 questions on the board, write the answers to them. They're going to uh, have their peer market and the answer's going to be on the board. And if they get nine or above, they're going to get credits and merits. And at that point, I'm like Willy Wonka at the chocolate factory. Factory. I'm just, you know, throwing credits, merits, whatever you want to call them out. It's great. You know, kids are like holding, we have planners at my school, they're holding their planners out like, sir, sir, I got, you know, I, I had to buy some stamps because I just would go around stamping these, you know, these, uh, these books to give the, the kids credits. But they're feeling that success, right? Even the, the, the lowest attaining classes, if you structure a script the right way, you know, if you structure your instruction in the right way, even the lowest attaining students can learn in your classroom um, you know we all know this and they can feel that sense of success you know i'm not saying that i you know cracked the teaching code or anything like that but you know it is a it's a lovely feeling to be in a classroom where students that appear to be disengaged uh, are begging you to for a credit they're asking to use scripted instruction and core response because uh, it's it, they they find some success in it and that and that's actually related to questions about engagement like how are students engaged in this? Well, they feel that success. And so they feel better about themselves. They want to learn more. And it, it's that Matthew effect. It kind of, mm -hmm. it, it, it builds upon each other. It's cumulative. So once they've done that and they've got their credits and their merits and they're happy and they themselves know they know it, right? They know the stuff they need to know about rainforests. Then I'm going to change the context again and give them some, some writing, a paragraph of writing. Again, and that, that's always a fun part of the lesson because if I've done my job properly with that scripted instruction, uh, I can just sit back. I don't have to answer any questions. They know the knowledge. You know, they've got a pen in their hands and I'll give them a kind of scaffold. They'll just write a paragraph about uh, flora and fauna in the rainforest. Um, usually have a cup of tea, watch them work. Occasionally I'll get, so what? Just check the back of your book. Oh yeah. And moving on. And yeah, that, that, and that is the simple, you know, simplest way of kind of, uh, of describing the lesson. We have the, uh, the script and instruction, and then we have some individual quiz practice, and then we have some more extended writing. Um, yeah. Right. Thank you so much. What a wonderful insight into 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 your classroom and for for a, for for an NQT to teach in that way and to be brave enough to teach in that way and 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 share that success with young people. It was it was great that you referenced the the engagement of, of the young people and the success because if we think back to when you were discussing Project Fall Through earlier on. And that third outcome that they, they measured as part of Project Frosty, that self-esteem of, of, the, of the young people, that was obviously shining through in, in your classroom. So just a couple of more questions for you, Sam, before we, we close off the interview section. 
Thank you for, for teachers listening. Um, when could or, or should a, a teacher use this type of lesson sequence? Should they use it all the time or could they, could they build it into set, certain, certain parts of their, of their curriculum? Yeah, so the lesson sequence that I just described is most appropriate for teaching fact systems, a bunch of knowledge about a topic. If you're teaching students how to solve simultaneous equations or solve grid references, you wouldn't want to teach in this way, right? It's not an appropriate method. Um, so that's when you could use it. Now, the question of whether you should use this type of lesson sequence, type of lesson sequence, is another matter altogether. You know, should teachers be going out and writing scripts to teach fact systems? Um, in short, I don't think so. Uh, and, and not because it's not effective, but because I think it's just a, a matter of like reality. You know, I, there was a point in my NQT year when I realized that this was really working for me, where I was like, I'm going to teach all my lessons like this. And it almost ruined my life because uh, it's a lot of work, like designing resources uh, with that amount of detail and, uh, you know, to that specification uh, is difficult. And, you know, teachers don't right, quite rightly don't have the time or the inclination to do that. And I'm also, you know, I'm constantly worried about this, um, this phenomenon of lethal mutations, um, you know, I've written about something about it before with knowledge organizers. Uh, there's a danger graphic organizer going that way. Uh, it, maybe booklets are going that way as well. Uh, I would be horrified for scripted instruction to go that way as well. Um, so when should a teacher use this type of lesson sequence? Uh, when they, as an individual, are convinced it is the right approach in their classroom. They should never use it. They should never be designing them if they've been told to design them and they're not convinced by it, I don't think. Um, yeah, I would hate for this to be something that kind of becomes, not that it, you know, not that I'm suggesting that someone's going to listen to this and be like, tis the answer. But, you know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced this would be successful. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a divisive method of teaching, right? Now, I'm trying to, I'm talking about it like it's the most normal thing in the world. Like I rock up to a class and do scripted instruction and call response. I hid this for six months. I told no one. I was terrified of my mentor walking in and be like, what on earth is going on here? You know, why, why are you holding a script? Why are these students chanting? You know, who, who do you think you are? Um, so yeah, um, it, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to do. It, it's not necessarily a desirable thing to do for all teachers, but if you, uh, if you think it could be effective and you know you want to put in the time to really design a, uh, a well-sequenced script then i really encourage you to do it but um definitely if you're if you're listening to this and like i'm going to start suggesting that my staff do this um please don't do that <laughs> thank you such, such sage advice thank you so much so that then where would where could listeners go to to find out a, a little bit more they're listening to this they've they're, they're um, really interested in what you have to say in terms of your philosophy of education your, your in-depth discussion on, on Sigrid Engelman's theory of instruction, especially the results of project follow-through. Where could they find out more? Lots of places. Let's go back to my branch diagram with my programs and my theory of instruction. If you want to learn more about the programs of direct instruction, uh, search for, I think it's www.directinstruction.co.uk. Uh, there is the DI hub that's out of, uh, ooh, come of the school now uh, but you can find the di hub on twitter uh, or you can find the di south hub uh, with susie cudpus and uh, kevin surrey and they they can really help you 
directs you towards the direct instruction programs that can be appropriate if you're a primary school teacher or if you want to use them as an intervention tool in secondary school. Uh, if you're interested in the theory of instruction, um, there are a number of people you can talk to uh, and read their blogs. Chris Bolton, uh, who I guess I should say is also my boss, but you should definitely check out his work. Uh, Naveen Rizvi, uh, Tom Needham, uh, Ben Gordon, all of these people are fantastic. Follow them on Twitter, read their blogs. There's the, uh, a book that Research Ed released on direct instruction. Um, or you could follow me on Twitter. I guess it's time for some self-promotion uh, at and at s underscore hall underscore teach or my blog is uh, shallteach.wordpress.com uh, or just shall teach however you want to interpret it and yeah there's there's all sorts of discussion going on about engelman's di uh and if you if you have any questions don't hesitate just dm me on twitter and i will probably ramble on at you uh, about direct instruction there if that's what you're interested in Certainly, and I was very interested interested in, in listening to your ramble. So thank you so much, Sam. And before we go on to we close off this section, could I, could I ask you why you think that that not as you mentioned, not very much people have heard of of Project Follow Through or Engelman's theory of instruction. Why do you think that is? Yeah, this is a serious can of worms. Um, so Project Follow Through revealed that the teaching method direct instruction was the most effective method in all areas studied. So why aren't we all teaching with direct instruction? Now there's a number of avenues to take this from. Engelman will tell you, or unfortunately he passed away, but he would tell you uh, that the reason is ideology, that the educational quote unquote establishment, the uh, academics and the governments and all sorts, what they wanted uh, was these even results, the couple of methods, and and really what they wanted was some like more progressive pedagogies to be proved to be effective. And I'm not sure if anyone picked it up, but direct instruction isn't the most ideologically progressive educational approach, although you might argue it's progressive from a socioeconomic standpoint. In any case, that wasn't very popular. And so the results were buried, according to Engelman. And he, is quite, he became quite a, a punchy uh, figure, kind of very critical of the educational establishment for, for burying DI for so many years. So that's one perspective. Um, <clears throat> the, the US government will say that um, th th there were some problems with the study, which I don't deny, you know, it wasn't a perfectly randomized control trial. And that um, really what all these programs needed was some more funding. More money would have eventually proved them to be effective. Um, my own kind of position is that it's a serious, serious change to teach pedagogies and a serious change to kind of the nature of teachers' work to require them to use scripted instruction and call response. Um, you know, I think and this is at least how I felt when I started teaching. I, you know, I thought of teaching more of a discursive activity, a conversation between students and teacher. And it's all about, um, you know, being responsive and in the moment and all these kind of things. And there's an element of professional pride, as there should be, in having agency in your classroom to choose the way you teach. And that's appropriate for your students. And so to mandate people to teach through scripted instruction and core response programs, or I should move away from that, to teach through Engelman's programs, uh, is a challenge to all of these things. Uh, and so 
lots of evidence that teachers don't want to teach through scripted instruction, uh, which I can completely understand. There's, there's, there's a final problem here as well, which is that this is so unorthodox and so unconventional that uh, you open yourself up to criticism. You know, uh, and this, I don't mean to be controversial here, but you know, you can you can do as the orthodoxy suggests you do, and you can uh, implement Rosenstein's explicit instruction, and you can you know, do things somewhat different, and you can probably be quite successful doing that within the kind of constraints of the current orthodoxy, and that's fine, and that's good, and schools will get better doing that. Uh, but if you were to suggest using Engelman's direct instruction and it were to fail, which I don't, which I don't think it, you know, it shouldn't do, but if it did, then you know, you've really put yourself out and you've really opened yourself up to criticism. And you know, it might be, it, it might, I'm not saying a career ender, but you know, it, it does put you in a difficult position. And so why take that risk when um, you know, there are other kind of better approaches that you can improve your teaching on. And so it's, you know, it's such a kind of seen as such a risky strategy that lots of schools don't do it. And it's expensive as well. You know, these programs cost money, which is a challenge. Um, so yeah, all of those reasons, I think, contribute to direct instruction not being well communicated. Uh, but hopefully at least chatting away with you today has given it a little bit more of a, of a push in some direction. Most certainly. Thank you so much for, for offering that, that wisdom there. Very, um, very thorough and you, you presented a, a lot of different different arguments here so thank you so much for that Sam thank you so much for explaining um so much concepts to me that that I've only recently unearthed and, and heard of and I've been teaching for this is my 10th year of teaching now so thank you so much for that we're now going to move on to the quick fire section to close the podcast Sam so these are three questions quite huge in scope I, I do appreciate that but I genuinely want your very quick initial thoughts from the heart, from the head on what you think. Are you ready for them? Yes, I am. Okay, so number one, uh, what makes great teaching for you? Uh, I think what Engelman would call logically faultless communication. Uh, basically having instruction that is so good that students can't possibly fail to learn from it. Uh, obviously contingent on behavior, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right, thank you. Question number two, uh, what one thing would you prioritise to bring about great teaching in every classroom? I think great resources for teachers. Uh, one of, at the moment, we've got thousands of teachers across the country essentially teaching the same content, but many of them designing their own resources. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's a monumental challenge for every teacher. And it doesn't strike me as particularly sustainable. And so I think if we had, you know, a central bank of you know, high quality resources that all teachers could call upon, that would be a really good step for the profession. Wonderful idea. And finally, question three, if you could change just one thing in education, what would that be? Ironically, uh, for someone who has works exclusively in the academic side of school, uh, I'd, I'd say that's not the thing I'd change. And this is less this is less academic in many ways. But uh, what I what I really loved about school sample size of one was uh, the non academic stuff. You know, music, art, drama, sport, school trips. And you know, I'd love to see a huge emphasis on that sort of stuff. Um, and I think one of the reasons I'm going to go go ramble on a bit. One of the reasons I'm so interested in instru in, in instruction is that we can teach students efficiently and quickly and and properly. You know, 
boost the amount of time it takes to get students reading, we can free up time so that students have the opportunity to do all of these things that if for some students, they might not have the opportunity to do that otherwise, unless schools offer those, those types of things. Uh, so yeah, apps, sport, music, drama, art, sport, school trips, you know, an opportunity for students to uh, pursue passions that they otherwise wouldn't get the opportunity to do. Absolutely love that. As a teacher of physical education, I just love what you said there. So thank you so much for that, for that input. That brings us to the end of the podcast, Sam. I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank you so, so much for your time today. Thank you so much for um, helping me explore Project Fallthrough and Sigfrid Ingman's theory of direct instruction and also helping me understand how that could be applied to to my classroom in the in the secondary secondary school so thank you so much wonderful thanks so much for having me down it was a really enjoyable uh, morning thanks for listening to this episode of becoming educated as ever i would be delighted to hear your thoughts and you can contact me via twitter at dn leslie or via email So that you don't miss out, I urge you to subscribe to the podcast. And while I have your attention, why not submit a review of the podcast wherever you get yours from, so that many, many others can access Become an Educator. I'll be back next week with another episode of Become an Educator, and I do hope to see you there.